We are continuing a series through the Sabbath this summer. I should mention that uh, at the outset of this service, the radio room did mention we were having some issues with our sound. It sounds like that is still the case. Uh, So I will attempt to speak up, recognizing that I am just finding my voice again after not having it for uh, a couple days. Today we look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, and we are considering the Sabbath from this angle, and it's a part of a passage that is, that is really nuanced and complex in a host of ways. We will not nearly be able to touch all that is there, but it also names some of the most central and beautiful truths of our faith. Paul, writing to the church at Colossae. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with him. When he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them. Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink, of observing festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Do not let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these regulations refer to things that perish with use. They are simply human commands and teachings. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety, humility, and severe treatment of the body but they are of no value in checking self-indulgence. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why do you have a cross at the center? Some of you remember how for a few years running, we used to host that uh, grill-out potluck meal for VCU international students at the beginning of the school year. And during one particular year, a host of international students made their way into the sanctuary and were looking around. And it was one student who grew up in India who was raised Buddhist and was standing next to me, remarked how he'd never been inside a Christian church. And as I was standing with him, he asked the most fascinating questions, made the most interesting observations about our pews, and the baptismal font, and then the most basic question of all, why do you have a cross in the center? I don't recall precisely how I answered the question, but it would seem to me one honest answer would be, well, because quite frankly we need it there, we Christians are prone to forget Paul is dealing with a church in Colossae where some seem to have forgotten the meaning and implications of the cross. The cross ends up being really the center of his his whole argument. They have gotten caught up, it turns out, in a host of other things. 
commentators widely note it's difficult to precisely figure out all the issues that going on in the congregation, but it is obvious that that within the church and even in the prevailing society around them, there are these growing expectations for what it means to be truly mature people, truly good people, truly godly people. There are the regular people, and then there are truly approved people, and their godliness is shown by the ways they keep certain rules. Within the church at Colossae, that means, well, they abstain from eating and drinking certain foods. They have an aesthetic rigor, these mature ones. They always observe the festivals unto the Lord and the Sabbath. They have a disciplined way of showing up according to the calendar expectations. Some, we read, worship angels. Others, they focus on finding spiritual visions and and insights that maybe not everyone else receives. And you notice in this list of what makes for the truly mature and godly person, there are a number of good things. Keeping Sabbaths. Festivals that honor and celebrate God. Spiritual insights, if they're from the Holy Spirit. Great. The problem is that some in the church have turned these good things into rules or regulations, as Paul's term is in verse 20. They've taken good, helpful practices, turned them into rules that one must really keep lest one be, quote, disqualified. True, mature Christians do these things. Insiders do these things. The godly do these things. And perhaps some of us push back and say, look, I know that's, that's a hard line, but you know, what's so bad about some rules and regulations, some standards? If anything, it sounds like the church in Colossae could, could teach the church in North America a thing or two about raising the bar. When I was in middle school, my parents gave me an NIV study Bible complete with a cover to, to protect it. And every Sunday I would take it to worship and I would open to the passage that was being preached on and I would follow along and I would, I would take notes or I'd, I'd highlight. I mean, it was, it, I learned it was a good practice. But by the time I was somewhere in the middle of high school, a funny thing happened that I didn't even realize for a while that it was happening. I started to take a little time at the outside of the, outside of the service or the sermon to notice who else had their Bible, and who didn't. And among the didn'ts, I broke it down into two categories. Those who didn't have a Bible, and those, but used the pew Bible, and those who didn't have a Bible, and just didn't use a Bible. And then, within the pew Bible, folks, I broke it down into the ones that opened their pew Bible for the reading of the scripture and the whole sermon, and then the ones who open for the reading of the scripture and put it away. Now, I did not say aloud any of all of my observations, but I definitely noticed which friends and which adults were, were, were the serious Christians and, and, and which ones were, were, were lacking at, at, at a pew Bible level or lower in my little system. I was a painfully self-righteous teenager. A Bible in my hand all the while, contempt and judgment just growing right here. When Paul cries out in frustration, 
Why, church, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch all of these rules they are making and keeping. Commentators note he's purposely using these short little phrases to mock how childish, how ridiculous some of the rules are that we start judging one another by. And in truth, these are the games sin has us playing all the time. At a societal level, we have all kinds of rules, spoken or otherwise, for how we measure people as more or less of a person or people. Your school, your neighborhood, your family name, your party affiliation, your parenting style, your bumper sticker choices, food choices, clothing brands, transportation choices. Just watch at the next social gathering in something like your neighborhood and, and see all the ways that we very often, but, but quite unconsciously, take good, normal things and, and then start to size one another up in this almost invisible pecking order based on all these rules for what makes a good person. Inside the church, I don't think I'm alone when with coming up with sort of unfortunate rules and deciding how to discern who are the mature from the sinners. If it's not Bible carrying, perhaps then for some it, it can become attendance. Worship, Sunday school, mission effort, efforts, attendance equals maturity. Or, or some, it can so easily become how we dress. Who, who dresses up and shows respect for God and, and who does not? Or obviously, there are those who, hey, let's come as we are. Come as Jesus invites us, but, but then can judge others as formal or stiff and out of touch. Or again, there's a temptation sometimes to measure one another by how we worship. And depending on your denominational background, things like raising of hands or clapping or stomping or amen is either highly spiritual or entirely immature and showy. And depending on your denominational background and whatnot, quietude in worship is either highly spiritual or unmoved and callous. From Bibles to Sabbath, attire to ways of worship, Paul cries out, these, these, these supposed markers of, of maturity, these rules, they're shadows. Christ is the substance. Paul, for instance, has nothing against the Sabbath. But he wants to make clear, don't, don't fall in love with this 24-hour day in and of itself and make rules about keeping it and deciding who's in and who's out based on how it is kept. The Sabbath is a shadow. The substance of Sabbath is Jesus. Jesus is the grace, the rest, the delight which Sabbath points to. Sabbath is great insofar as it's a conduit for receiving Jesus and his grace and his rest and his truth. But but forget about it if, if it's a rule by which we rank one another. Participating in worship, Sunday school, small group, mission efforts, goodness, that That is being the visible body of Jesus Christ. But none of these events in and of themselves is Jesus himself. Jesus is the insight and the joy and the hope to which all of these different gatherings point us. They are excellent and good and essential as conduits for receiving and growing in Jesus Christ. But they are empty if 
we no longer pay attention to Jesus, but instead are really just sort of counting who is present and who is not and making this a pecking order for maturity. It is empty to have the Bible in one hand, all the while the heart is growing with contempt for them. In fact, if this day we've been shaking our head in some measure of disgust or contempt or just frustration at a particular person or even people. If, if we notice in some parts of our heart there, there's more frequently a tightening of judgment than an expanding of love for another, we might ask ourselves, what rule have we set up that that person or those people is breaking? What is the human standard, the human thinking, as Paul puts it, that we've put in place that is now so important? Perhaps we do need the cross at the center once more. Which is why Paul begins this section with the cross. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, when when you were spiritually dead and your heart was captive to sin, when you were spiritually dead and, and and, and thinking about the world in terms of insiders and outsiders and judging accordingly, when you were spiritually dead, God made you alive. How? Two ways, both on the cross. First, we read, God forgave the entire record of sin in our lives by nailing it to the cross. Every sinful word, every sinful deed, thought, God nails them to the cross, which is to say they are made totally dead. So when we make up these, these rules about who's an insider, who's an outsider, who's a little bit better, who's a little bit worse, who's acceptable, who's not. God destroys the entire logic of that thinking on the cross saying, look, all of you were outsiders because of sin and all of you are insiders because I forgive you. All of, all of you are outsiders, now insiders by grace. So, so stop playing the games. Just receive the grace that there, there is no hierarchy. All are outsiders now insiders by Jesus alone. One, Jesus nails our sin to the cross. Two, we go, we read on that God also on the cross, quote, disarmed the rulers and authorities, triumphing over them in it. The rulers and authorities, Paul speaks of, are the same things, are what is also meant, same thing as the elemental spirits of the universe in verse 20. These are the prevailing thought patterns and rules that, that so naturally govern our thinking and our acting. These are the thought patterns that have us comparing one another and, and making hierarchies based on certain metrics of success or, or, or maturity. And Paul says, on the cross, Jesus disarms that, that whole kind of way of thinking. More precisely, the Greek there is, is, is strips them in reference to a garment. Jesus undresses these patterns and rules and shows them to be empty. For right, it was the prevailing thought patterns of the day that put Jesus on the cross. And the, the prevailing thought pattern of the day said the cross is the most shameful, most cursed way to die. The cross is, is, is a marker of those who are definitely the lowest, definitely on the outside. And Jesus is put on a cross, and three days later he rises from the grave. 
Essentially saying, look at your cross. Supposedly the marker for that, those who are shameful, weak, and outside. Look how impotent and empty that way of thinking is, that reality is, for I am alive. Jesus explodes the whole governing idea who, of who's up and who's down. The way of thinking has no power. It is dead. Why do you have a cross in the center? Because, quite frankly, we forget that Jesus looked at each of us in our sin, and rather than judge us, he nailed it to this cross. We Christians, we need help remembering that forgiveness sits at the center of our faith making us all equally outsider, now insiders before God. We forget. Because, quite frankly, we forget that Jesus frees us from the foolish ways of comparing and judging that break this world apart. We need help remembering how radically free we are from those governing patterns. But today we remember. Today we see afresh the centrality of the cross. And the implications are stunning. And while our specific passage doesn't offer a host of practical ways for, for some of the stunning implications of what it means then to be a people free of sin and, and free from being governed by the thought patterns of our day, Paul does start to get there in chapter 3, the next chapter. Colossians 3 Uh, verses 12 through 15 in particular is a section where Paul is exhorting the church of what it does mean to be rooted not in the shadow but in the substance who is Jesus himself. It's interesting to note, right, in our passage Paul speaks of stripping the powers and principalities that govern our way of thinking, disrobing them. Well, in Colossians 3, Paul speaks of a more substantive kind of clothing that we are to put on, rooted in. In Jesus Christ. And, and so what I want to do to end this sermon is, is read Colossians 3 verses 12 through 15. And I'm going to do so slowly. So that our hearts have enough space to, to allow the Holy Spirit to mold us according to this word. To root us in this word. To allow us to even start to see the stunning implications of what it means to be a free people rooted in the real substance of Jesus Christ. Let us hear God's word. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, Humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other just as the Lord has forgiven you.
so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. To which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Amen.